Hello, I'm Delaney Reston, physician and the creator of the Screenagers movies, and this is the Screenagers podcast. Today's episode really resonates with me. Let me ask you a question. Do you have a strong inner critic like I do? Do you beat yourself up at times, including around how you're doing as a parent? If so, this episode is going to be really helpful. Have you heard of the term self-compassion? And if so, maybe like me, you've been a little skeptical about it. I confess that I was. But then recently, I started learning more about the science of it and how to practice it. And this made me wonder about the ways self-compassion can help with parenting, particularly parenting around screen time. So I invited our guest to today's show, Kristen Neff. Kristen holds a PhD in psychology and is a pioneer in the field of self-compassion. She is well known for having created a validated tool for measuring self-compassion and has published over a hundred scientific papers on the topic. She's the author of the popular book, Self-Compassion, The Power of Being Kind to Yourself, and Dr. Neff is a mom herself. She talks with me about why and how to use self-compassion to become a more effective and less stressed parent. Kristen, it is such a delight to have you on the podcast. Oh, thanks. Happy to be here. How do you describe what you do? My official title is Associate Professor at the University of Texas at Austin. Uh, Although these days I'm spending less time writing academic papers and most of my time really focused on the self-compassion work. Fantastic. I want to start from a personal place. So about 10 months ago, I restarted with a therapist because I was struggling with my marriage and I... It was surprised when the therapist said, Delaney, do you do a self-compassion practice? I was surprised that I didn't. I was like, actually, no. And I was also really surprised that my first response was like, that wouldn't work for me. Trying to be nice to me. I'm not mean to me and I have skills, but there was this Uh kind of interesting reaction to it. Mm. I'm going to tell you what ultimately happened, but can you start by saying what self-compassion is both from a research perspective and how you explain it to teens and parents? Yeah. The Latin roots, passion is suffer, calm is with. So it's like, how are you with your suffering or your difficult emotions with the, the challenging things that happen in your life? Are you with yourself in a friendly, supportive way or in a cold and judgmental way? We're used to being compassionate to others, like our good friends. And when I'm talking to teens, I usually use that as the context because Teenage years are often about developing these close, intimate friendships. So understanding what that feels like to be compassionate toward a good friend, there for them, supportive, accepting, but also maybe giving them a little boost when they need it, that it's really just turning that compassion inward. And with your research, I love how you break it down into three components. Can you give us those three components? Yeah, it's more than just kindness, which is maybe the most obvious part of self-compassion, but there are two other elements in addition to kindness, which are mindfulness and a sense of common humanity. So mindfulness, you might say it's the first step temporally in self-compassion in that we need to be willing to turn toward and acknowledge that we're struggling. And you might think that's really obvious. Sometimes it's not. Either we just like, okay, I'm just going to push on through this so we don't pause just to say I'm having a hard time. Or we do the opposite. We get like blended with all the difficult emotions. We we get lost in it. And when we're lost in what's happening, there's no perspective to step outside of ourselves and say, hey, what do you need right now that would help? So that, that balanced perspective of mindfulness is really needed to give ourselves compassion. 
And then really important is we frame everything in light of the, the shared human experience, or I call it common humanity. In other words, even though it's very typical to assume, it's not logical to assume I'm the only one who's failed or made such a horrible mistake or who's going through this challenge. And by the way, for teens, that's especially the case because of the personal fable that happens in adolescence. It's not enough life experience to really understand that, oh yeah, mom must have gone through this too, or other people go through this too. So when we remember that imperfection, whether it's making mistakes or failing or just the imperfection of life, the struggle of life, that this is normal, that you aren't alone. This is actually part of what it means to be human. It softens that sense of isolation and helps us feel more supported as we are with ourselves with compassion. So those three elements, mindfulness, common humanity, and kindness. When my therapist said to me, Delaney, let's try some self-compassion, she said something that really helped me to want to do it. She said, you need to have more compassion for yourself. It will help you have more compassion for others. How can you be as compassionate to others if you're not doing it for yourself? And I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm on board. Okay, what do I do? How do I do this? Yeah. I started to do the mindfulness practice in the morning, putting my hand to my chest made a big difference uh-huh. and just saying, you're feeling this and this is okay. And I actually started to soften into it. Yes. And this pertains to parents and teens, but what are some of the challenges people face? So a lot of the challenges are misconceptions that are fed by our culture. So for instance, the idea that it's selfish. People think like I only have five units of compassion. So if I get through to myself, I won't have much left over for other people. And yet the reality is like your therapist said, the more compassion flows inward, the more resources we have available to give to others. If you want to sustain being compassionate to others, then it needs to flow inward. And that gives you the resources to stay in the game and not be so overwhelmed with empathic distress or or burnout, et cetera. It's not just letting yourself off the hook, because if you care about yourself, you're going to take responsibility and it's not going to undermine your motivation, which is actually the biggest block to self-compassion. People think if they just accept themselves that they aren't going to want to make any changes, even though the exact opposite is true. The more we accept ourselves, the more we care about ourselves, the more we're going to want to make changes to make our lives better, to make our behaviors better, not because we're unacceptable as we are, but just because we care. So you got to get those out of the way because they are huge blocks. And luckily, there's so much research now that if you don't believe me, just look at my website, look at the research. It's clear. And then once people give themselves permission to be self-compassionate, it's actually not that difficult because they already know how to do it for others. Why is it there's so much self-criticism or critique or negative self-talk? And then how do we hack that for another aspect of ourselves? Yeah, yeah. I had someone send me an email once, thanks for telling me one more thing I'm bad at. So it was like, no, we don't want to judge ourselves for being self-critical. So if you look at evolution, the way evolution designed our brains, for personal safety, when we're personally threatened, the first thing that kicks online is the fight, flight, or freeze response, sympathetic nervous system reaction. And so when we fail or make a mistake or something's challenging, we're personally threatened. 
And then, so we turn the fight, flight, or freeze response inward because we're the problem. Self-criticism is a safety behavior. Uh-huh. We think it's going to get us in line. We think it's going to maybe protect us from the judgment of others because we're used to it. We're doing it to try to help ourselves, even though it's not very helpful. That's the underlying reason we do it. Or we flee in the sense of shame and isolation, again, out of self-protection. Or we freeze and we ruminate out of self-protection. When your best friend has something bad happen to them, you aren't personally threatened, right? So evolution also gave us another safety system called the care system, which is really more evolved for um, parents to take care of offspring and offspring to want to be taken care of by parents and for group members to take care of each other. So that's more related to parasympathetic nervous system response, heart rate variability, et cetera. But it feels more natural to be compassionate to others we care about. It feels more natural to be self-critical. So that's, you might say, the the bad news (laughs) that's built in our brains. But the good news is we can do a hack. The body doesn't really know the difference. If you treat yourself like a friend, or if you said, if if you put your own hand on your heart, the body reacts as if someone else was doing it. So we just need to tap into the system that's also natural, that's also habitual, that comes on very easily online with others and make a U-turn and give it to ourselves. And so one way to access that is simply to say, how would I relate to a friend or someone I really loved who was in a similar situation? And then, oh, I know what I would say. I wouldn't say what I just said to myself, that's for sure. Just to reiterate this fight or flight or freeze reaction that we have, your point is if we were trying to run away from a tiger or whatnot, having that immediate kind of, hey, you better run, like a harsh tone with ourselves is what could be life-saving. Yeah. And and, and even for a moment, maybe you're doing something that's really harmful and a voice says, hey, don't do that. But then you don't want to, you don't want to like, if you shame yourself and you say, because you're a terrible person and I hate you, that's going to actually make you less able to change it because your resources will be depleted. You'll be so focused on how bad you are that you won't be able to consider possible options. So maybe even that first voice of, hey, pay attention is somewhat useful. But then we want to come in just like a parent with a young child. If a child's going to run out into the street, maybe you need, I call this fierce self-compassion, actually. Hey, no, stop. But it's not because you're bad. It's because I care about you. And then, of course, the goal is to how can I help you reach your goal that it's so important for you? And so it's not like we don't ever raise our voice to ourselves. We may but it comes from a place of love, not hate. Kristen, let's talk a tiny bit more about what you would say to your friends, how that relates to what we say to ourselves. Yeah, so we like to say that self-compassion is asking the question, what do I need in the moment to care for myself? And so sometimes we need validation. It's okay, it's only human, everyone does it. But sometimes we do need more like a mentor. So there's a friend, but it also might be like a good coach or a mentor might give you constructive feedback. Sometimes you need that constructive feedback. Sometimes you don't. You just need to be listened to, right? Sometimes actually problem solving can be helpful. Mm -hmm. But if what you really need is just to be validated, it it can be not helpful. So you have to ask yourself what you need. And it's not always clear cut. And yeah, we do have, you know, we're still a mess. It's not like being self-compassionate means we're not human anymore. We're just got it all sorted out. We like to say the goal of practice is simply to be a compassionate mess. So yeah, it's still messy. It's still unclear. What do I need in the moment? I'm not sure. Then maybe you try this and you realize it didn't quite work. You need a little more of that. It's really the process. 
you're moving toward a more friendly, benevolent attitude as opposed to you need this because you're bad and you're flawed and no one's going to love you. That's not very helpful. Yeah. Let's get into some examples from a parenting perspective, because so much of parenting, particularly in the screen age, when there's so many conflicts, we know we're at a very high level of conflicts in the home, which gives lots of opportunities to get better at communicating and closer. But it's really hard for us parents a lot of the time. Let's think of a scenario. I'm thinking of a scenario of, I'll just say my son, let's say when he was a teenager and I said, okay, tech is going away for a sleepover at 10 and 10 o'clock comes and it's, he's mad at me. He's pushing back. He's mom. We really want to keep doing this thing. And together we had already come up with 10. Like I was going to make it nine. We had done collaborative limit setting. And so I enforce the rule and I feel a mix of hard emotions. Yeah. Am I too strict a mom? Am I being unfair? I'm frustrated at him that he's making me feel bad. Uh-huh. What would self-compassion, what's an example of how that could look for me as a parent in that moment? Yeah. So I think this is really where tender and fierce self-compassion comes in. So tender self-compassion is about acceptance of ourselves as unconditionally worthy because we're human, acceptance of our emotions because they've arisen. And if we fight them, they're just going to be worse. Whereas fierce self-compassion is about taking action to be well. And that might mean drawing boundaries, setting rules, saying no, for instance, or protecting ourselves. And it's like yin and yang. We need both and they need to be in balance because if we're too accepting without any rules or taking action, then we might be complacent or indulgent as a parent. That's not going to help your child. But if we're too much about like rules and taking action and problem solving and doing that, and there's no acceptance, that's not helpful either. So when they combine, I like to call it a caring force. So they can be forced. I call it mama bear self-compassion as well. There's this energy of power and taking action but it's always mixed with this tender acceptance, Mm -hmm. right? And so in a situation like that with your child, the part of you that knows your child needs a boundary because it's in the best interests of your child, that's the mama bear fierce part, steps up and says, no, we agree. The part of you that feels badly about yourself, that's where you need the tender self-compassion. Towards yourself, it hurts. So I'm going to be with myself in an unconditionally loving way at the same time that the fierce mama bear side of me is going to stand firm and draw this boundary. And you really need both. If you have one without the other, then it's it's incomplete. And so this is in your child's best interest. But let's say you need to draw a boundary, like I'm trying to work. Please don't disturb me unless it's really important type of thing. These are my boundaries. The drawing boundaries, the saying no, the speaking up for yourself, that's self-compassion. So there's fierce and tender self-compassion, both inward and outward. I talk a lot with parents about parenting with integrity. And so if I didn't set that boundary around 10, it's actually not just about my son. It's about I'm going to suffer more because I know I'm not parenting with what the science shows, what's in his best interest. And that actually is a way of suffering. So putting that boundary is a compassionate act I'm doing for myself as well as for him. Yeah. And also part of what's going on is we want to feel worthy. We want to feel like we're good parents. We want our kids to love us. And so we're really using our children and their reactions to us to to get our sense of self-worth. We're looking outward toward our children for their validation, for us to feel good about ourselves. And in a way, that's not really fair to them either, because maybe what they need is to put the phone away at 10. 
being willing to say, okay, this is an inside job. My worth comes from my relationship with myself. You do want to question, is this the best thing? Maybe you are being too strict, but if you've decided this is the healthy thing, then you need to give yourself validation and acceptance. Don't rely on your child's reaction to you to get that. That's what self-compassion can give you. Yeah. One of the things that helped me, and it's going to relate to a story about you and your son that I'd love you to recount. As I was going through some really hard times with my two teenagers, and the pain was so intense for me as a parent, and I'm a big believer that there's almost no pain worse than when your kids are in pain and struggling. And what I just got in touch with and has helped me so much is I was so aware of how my compassion for the world got bigger. Just whatever came my way with struggling and suffering, I have started a practice of sitting with it and saying, but the good news is my compassion for the world is growing. I feel connected. Mm -hmm. It's that connectedness that I'm not alone. And I do, I'm realizing like, I just have this humility that is actually making me feel connected. And I want to really nurture that. Yeah. Does that ring true? Absolutely. So one way to approach self-compassion is you think of who is the self that's receiving the compassion and who is the self that's giving the compassion. So the self that's receiving the compassion is you might say more a kind of a limited self or self that makes mistakes and is flawed and just struggling and often feels isolated from other people. But the self that's giving compassion, like where's the compassion coming from? This comes from you can call it whatever you want, your higher self, your bigger self, your connected self, your spiritual self, like whatever resonates for you. But it's a less limited self. It's a more connected self. My heart's open and it's bigger than me. My son has, he not only has autism, but he also has OCD. So for instance, what I do if I'm dealing with my son when he's having a really hard time is I just imagine that I'm this wide open field Mm. of like warm, loving space expand way beyond the confines of my body. If I'm just a wide open field of loving awareness, then it can't be harmed by whatever's thrown at it. Mm -hmm. So that thing of feeling bigger than yourself when you give compassion is really key. Wow. You have talked about when you were at the park with your son and how you were looking at the other kids in the park. Can you share that story? So the the story was I was at the park with my son and he was maybe four at the time. And he is autistic, as I mentioned. So I was at the park and it was a beautiful day and there were all these kids with their parents and all the kids were playing with each other and coming up to their parents. And it just seemed like they were having so much fun. My son, especially in the early days of his autism, used to do this self-stimulating behavior. He was just banging on the slide, listening to the sound. It's very typical of autism. This is repetitive movement. Was it interacting with me? Was it interacting with the kids? He was totally in his own world. And I started to fall into the sense of feeling really isolated, like why me and all, all these other parents have I'm assuming these great relationships that kids are interacting with them and playing. And I started feeling sorry for myself, to be totally honest. And so I was going down that rabbit hole and then it struck me, wait a second, Kristen, you're assuming that all of these parents not only have, but will continue to have a problem-free relationship with your kid, that you're the only one who's struggling with your kid. First of all, there's a lot of autism out there, but even beyond that, maybe it's not autism, but surely a lot of these kids will have like other mental health issues or challenges. And, and in fact, 
Whoever said that parenting was about having a problem-free relationship? That's not what it means to be a parent. It means kids have struggles, problems come up, and you do your best and you love them as best you can and you take it day by day. And so the moment I realized that and I stopped feeling so isolated and started connecting with the, the difficulty for all parents, pain with children is part of being human. Not Some people have it more than others, of course, but it, it's you aren't the only one and I wasn't the only one. And so the moment I did that, I felt like this real sense of connection with all the other parents there. And this is so important. This is why com the sense of common humanity is so important. Getting out of that false sense of isolation. It's just me. It's not. And you realize that, yeah, this is what life entails. Life is messy. I want to talk a little bit about research. You've done okay. over 100 papers, but one of them that just flows nicely from what we just talked about has to do with when you studied self-compassion in terms of parenting children with autism. Yeah. And can you speak of that research? Yeah, yeah. So and there's other people who have done more research since then, but looking at um, the parental stress levels of parents of autistic children. So those parents who can be more self-compassionate about the fact that they had a child with autism were less stressed. And this is really interesting the level of compassion was more important in predicting their level of stress than how severe their child's autism was. I see this in other fields as well, for instance, with combat soldiers. The most important thing in predicting PTSD is not how severe the combat was, but how self-compassionate soldiers are about the combat they experienced. So in other words, it's not that what happens to you doesn't matter, but even more important than what happens to you is how are you relating to what happens to you? So if it's maybe a, a moderate stressor, but you beat yourself up and you shame yourself and you feel isolated, you're going to be more stressed than a more severe stressor. And you say, how can I be here for myself? This is so hard. I'm not alone. And generating this warm, supportive mindset, that's actually going to reduce your stress levels more than um, having a, a less powerful stressor. Yeah. So it's really huge. It's a major coping mechanism. Self-compassion makes a huge difference in our ability and our strength to get through difficulty and stress. Yeah. I know your research has also shown, for example, teens who practice more self-compassion, that's associated with better being. And you actually yeah. do intervention studies. You've had a control group and you had the intervention group. Those who got the intervention had, among many things, more self-efficacy and less rumination. There's a lot of research showing self-efficacy. Um, more motivation, more of a learning and growth orientation. Because when you're there for yourself, mm -hmm. it means you feel more empowered to make changes, right? You feel oh. more motivated to reach your goals because it's okay to fail as long as you learn from them. And if you don't learn from them, you're still okay. Making mistakes is yeah. part of the process. I love, Kristen, that you said, even if you don't learn, because if teens are always like, I don't know what I learned from it, mom. I don't know. Yeah. That's okay. There, It's in there. With self-compassion, our worth is unconditional. The worth of every human being is unconditional from the perspective of compassion. Mm -hmm. Now, behaviors and situations, maybe we could work on those. Yeah, for sure. But we aren't our behaviors. So, okay, let's take a an example then a teen or parent is all of a sudden in that moment of starting to notice the self-criticism what do you lead someone lead them through so first of all helping people to realize that their self-critic is actually trying to help them mm -hmm. you don't want to beat yourself up for beating yourself up that's a part of you that is trying to help you by calling your attention 
and point out maybe what, what, how it might be helpful to change or to do something differently or to change the situation. So you start actually start with compassion and understanding for that part of you that's criticizing yourself. And then is there a better, is there a more effective way to motivate a change? And you just purposely call in the three components. You can do this writing or you can just do this and talking to yourself. You always start with mindfulness, which is being aware of the fact that this is hard, that suffering is present. If you aren't aware, then there's nothing you can do about it. Mm -hmm. And we'll just put in there, suffering can be any kind of level of emotional pain. It can be big suffering. It can be little suffering. It can be irritation. It can be towards yourself. It can be someone, your neighbors running their light leaf floor and you're trying to sleep in on Sunday morning. It can be anything, right? Mm -hmm. So this is hard right now. This is irritating or this is distressing. So you recognize that. Okay, that's mindfulness. And, we, and you're with it instead of being lost in it, there's, you're aware of it, but there's a little space around this. So you need that space to be able to, to do something. And then you remember that, that this is part of life. You aren't alone. That, that little voice that says it shouldn't be this way, not supposed to be this way, you're the only one who's experiencing this, that's a false voice. So just recognizing this is part of being human. Many other people feel this way. Yes, maybe some worse, but nonetheless, there's nothing wrong with me for feeling this way. We're humanizing it. That's the thing about compassion. It brings in our humanity as opposed to dehumanizing either ourselves or others. Okay. And then we bring in the kindness. And the kindness, I like to say one way to bring in kindness, the, the simplest way is through physical touch. You mentioned that putting your hands on your heart or your body is, is really helpful. That's because as human beings, we're, we're designed to, to uh, interpret touch as a signal of care. Babies, for the first two years before there's language, the primary way parents communicate care to their infants is through touch. So putting your hands on your heart or your face, you're giving yourself a hug or holding your hand, you're actually changing your um, sympathetic nervous system reaction to be more parasympathetic. You're calming yourself down. You're literally saying, I'm here for you because you're touching yourself. And then some words of kindness. What would I say to a friend in this situation? Or what do I need to hear right now that would be helpful? And then you say that to yourself. It feels a little weird at first because we aren't used to it, but you, you become used to it. What tone, what inner tone of voice would I use? What would I say? What would be wise? What would be most helpful right now to hear? What are some examples? Sometimes it's just what we really, really need to know is just, I'm here for you. It's okay. You're doing the best you can. This won't last forever, perhaps. It's okay to make mistakes. I believe in you. Is there something you often say to yourself in particular? Yeah, you know what else works for me? It's, I will not abandon you. Because there's, I think what happens when we criticize or we shame ourselves is that we feel like we, we're cut off from ourselves. We hang our head in shame and we feel like abandoned. And also I've got abandonment issues. I will not abandon you for me really helps. I just, I feel like, okay, that's right. Part of me that loves myself is not going anywhere. We're asking ourselves and other people to do this the moments that they are most emotionally charged, right? Like you yeah. are under stress or you are putting yourself yeah. down. That is the time where we go into autopilot. How do you get this to be more of a habit? And the reality of it's one of these things that we're asking ourselves and others to do in the hardest times to do them. Yeah, yeah. So it does help to have a daily practice, like to do maybe 10 or 20 minutes of some sort of meditation or a guided practice. I have a lot of 
pre-guided practices on my website, for instance. Some people use sticky notes just to remind themselves. For me, pain is my reminder. So after, as you might say, it's a conditioned response. When you respond with compassion to your pain, part of you remembers, oh, that really helped. What is it that I did? You got to try it out to know, to experience that it helps. If it's just theoretical, you aren't going to do it. But if you try it out and you see almost immediately how it helps, I just, I really just really focus on embodying loving, connected presence. You can be in this wide open field of loving awareness that could hold him and that can be there for him, but not triggered by him. And it's funny, the moment I contract, then he reacts. Uh, it, it does model from eventually he does start to calm down. He does actually know self-compassion now. Although sometimes the best time to model it is not when your moment of suffering is your child who's just triggered you, which is the best time to model self-compassion is about something else. You missed a turn or something really difficult is happening. Yeah. And in front of him, I'll put my hand on my heart and this is really hard and I'll say kind things to myself and it's only human and he's really gotten that message. On the other hand, if you say, oh, I'm such an idiot your child's going to very clearly get the message that that's the best way to talk to yourself. And by the way, we got to watch out for this tendency. We criticize ourselves because we want compassion from others. Oh, I'm so stupid Mm because we want other people to say, oh, no, you are. Interesting. What you're doing is modeling that's the way to be. So you got to say it for yourself. You can't put that on other people Mm. because... No, I just did that the other day. I was feeling insecure of looks and I said something to somebody else and I purposely realized afterwards... Gosh, that felt good when they they said something nice. Yes. And I was like, but ooh, I'm gonna, I got to keep working on my just internal stuff because if I yeah. need that external validation, that man ain't going to work well. That's right. One of the things that self-compassion really has given me, really has given me, is I'm okay with not being perfect. I've got lots of, made lots of mistakes and lots of things I regret and that's okay. And my self-compassion practice gives me that confidence to even share with the things that I, I regret, even that are shameful, even with other people. And they may judge me, but people may judge me for it. But that's not, my, that's not my goal. My goal is to help people learn self-compassion. And I just knew without a shadow of a doubt that the more I can make myself vulnerable and also model compassion for how I relate my vulnerabilities. Yeah, I did this. Not proud of it. How did I bring compassion to that? And what did it give to me? A lot of people say I'm very authentic and relatable. It's just self-compassion. It gave me authenticity. And actually the research really buttresses this point. The more self-compassion you are, the more authentic you can be. Because again, at the end of the day, I am who I am and who I am is unconditionally worthy. And I don't need, I don't worry so much about social approval because it's not going to impact my sense of self-worth. And the more your self-worth comes from within, just from being a flawed human being, I'm a mess. I'm a flawed human being. I am. I admit it. I don't have to pretend otherwise. And if I can be a compassionate mess, I can be authentic. We've got to throw one research finding. We found that a romantic relationships, self-compassionate people have more intimate relationships precisely because they can be more authentic. That's what explains it. So if you want more closeness in your relationships, more self-compassion you have, the more vulnerable and authentic you can be, which creates intimacy, which is very good for connection. So given how lonely people are, that's a really good finding. Yeah. And the other, ultimately, 
young people, young adults, teens, kids, they crave authenticity. Yeah. And so those of them that will be listening to this podcast with their parents or alone, like just for them to remember, oh yeah, this, to hear that from you, that this work in self-compassion can actually help me to be more authentic and more comfortable with that. Yeah. And when each of us do that work, we end up getting a society, a world that's going to be much more based in what's really happening. What a gift. This has been so great. And one of the things that people love about the work that you do is you make so many tools available. Can you just say a little bit about what you have at your website and beyond? And of course, your books. It is selfcompassion.org. You just Google self-compassion, you'll find me. I have a lot of free practices available. I'm also soon going to be starting a self-compassion community, which will be a subscription service where you can go deeper and interact with others and give more tools. But there's still a lot of stuff just freely available to the public right now. That's probably the best place to start. Chris, I just can't thank you enough. This has just been such a fantastic conversation and I want to thank you so much. Thanks, Delaney. It's been a lot of fun. Thanks for listening today. And if you can tell one friend about the Screenagers podcast, that really helps spread the word and helps people find the show. Be sure to go to ScreenagersMovie.com to find the show notes from this episode, learn about screening our movies, and sign up for my weekly blog about parenting in the screen age, now in its eighth year. This Screenagers podcast episode was produced by me, your host, Delaney Rustin, Lisa Tab. Rebecca Tolan, and Alan Gofinski. Alan is also our sound editor. 